to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. My name is Kimberly Simpkins, and this show is about my family's amazing journey of navigating mental illness and marriage and much more. Psalm 6612 says, You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. My goal is to share our story of the many challenges our family has experienced while living in the shadow of my husband's bipolar 1 diagnosis, and how we were miraculously brought to a place of safety by Jesus' mighty hand. I hope to encourage those who are walking alongside a spouse or partner with mental illness while also growing in faith and devotion to the Lord. Even if you're not a person of faith, I think you will still be encouraged by our story, especially if you or a loved one struggle with mental illness. Special thank you to my husband, Scott, for his support and permission to share the story as well as allowing me to use one of his original compositions performed by yours truly on violin and a wonderful colleague on piano. Hey friends, so before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to share a few little things. Um, First of all, I was recording this in my car outside of my daughter's theater rehearsal. So if you hear birds and cars and traffic, that's why. (laughs) Sorry about that, but you know, I don't have a studio and I'm just trying to do trying to get this out there whenever I can. So there's that. Also, um, so I'm recording this during Mental Health Awareness Month, which is every May, apparently. And I just wanted to share that, um, you know, some of the parts of our story are, are very difficult. And, you know, they're not pretty. And first of all, you know, shout out to Scott for giving me his permission to share you know, from our lives, because it's just not pretty. But as I am coming to learn, especially recently, as I've connected with other spouses in my position of being married to someone with um, significant mental health challenges, what we've been through is actually not all that unusual. And at the time I was going through it, I didn't know that. But now looking back, I'm seeing that, you know, there are certain aspects of our story, such as, you know, separation, the person with the illness leaving for whatever reason, ending up homeless, dealing with the criminal justice system. All of those things can be part and parcel of dealing with serious mental illness. And I think, you know, we as a society, we're starting to become more aware of mental illness and and the impact that it has on our lives and on our society and everything. But, you know, there's still a lot of stigma. And I guess I just wanted to share that, you know, when I'm sharing our story, in no way am I ever trying to um, make Scott look bad or anything like that. You know, he's a, a person. He's a brave person. I respect and admire him because he has been through so much and yet, you know, he keeps on going. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to put it out there that I'm not like trying to share all of our, 
all of our stuff, you know, but really what I want is for our story to be an inspiration and for people to see, you know, the reality of what it's like to deal with significant mental illness. It's not always what's portrayed on, on TV, that it's not always, um, you know, it, it can be confusing at times, but, you know, you can also overcome and you can get through some things. So I'm sharing, you know, these parts of our story as a way to hopefully inspire and encourage if you or someone you know is in a position to where you're dealing with any kind of mental illness, you know, it, any kind of um, situation that involves misunderstanding or you know, anything of that nature. I just kind of wanted to put a face to it, put a, put a, you know, a, a, just to see that a real family has walked through this. And anyway, so that's my goal. Um, you know, also too, the thing to remember is that whenever there's mental illness of any kind, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar, anything of that nature, PTSD, it can have a pretty significant impact on the family, you know, on the financial part of the family, on the the extended family, um, you know, even on our, our, our healthcare system, and even in our jails and everything. So I don't know, I guess I just felt like I just wanted to share that. And, you know, hopefully, um, for those who find themselves in a situation where they have a spouse with a significant mental health challenge, I hope that they won't find themselves in this situation. And maybe through our story, they can learn things that can help them be proactive and not end up in a situation like ours. There are things that I know now that I wish that I had known then that I think would have prevented a lot of things if I just had a little bit more education and more understanding and even more support because I had no one, absolutely no one walking me through this who had any kind of experience of dealing with someone with a significant mental health challenges. I was learning it as I go along. So I say all that to say that I'm pleased and, and happy to see that in recent years, just even within the last maybe five two to five years, there are more and more um, resources for people who are dealing with serious mental health issues in their marriages. And I just wanted to mention a couple. Um, there is Fresh Hope for Mental Health, which is a great faith-based organization for those who have a mental health challenge and offers hope and resources and encouragement that you can have a a productive and fruitful life and that you can live well in spite of a mental health challenge. And then also Mental Health Strong, which is another faith-based organization specifically geared towards spouses of those who have a mental health challenge because we are in a unique position. Our loved one you know, they're living with the with the condition, but we are living with the effects of the condition and it can have, you know, an impact on the family. But, you know, these resources are there to show that you're not alone, number one, and that you can come through it. You know, you can um, at least learn things that can help you navigate to help you know how to... Um, you know, navigate your situation, some practical things, um, 
you know, some personal things, self-care, things of that nature. So anyway, I, I didn't mean to go on and on like this before getting into the episode, but I just wanted to put that out there because, you know, this is a very real thing. This is something that's um, dear to my heart. And again, I just wanted to express my gratitude to my husband for allowing us to open our lives up like this. And and I hope that, you know, in some way you, you are blessed and inspired and feel free to, to leave a note, drop me a line. You can also, um, you know, become a patron and have access to the bonus content so that you can hear more about, you know, some of the deeper parts of our story that are not for public consumption. Um, there's information about that. I'll put it all in the show notes. If you'd like to support the podcast, you know, I, I, I do have, um, plans to, to, to build it over time. So if you'd like to be a part of supporting that, you can buy me a coffee and you can buy me a few coffees if you like, or you can become a monthly patron and have access to the bonus content. So I'll put all of that in the show notes and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. This is part two of the first time he left. Hello again, and welcome back to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. So at least this time, I'm not putting two months between episodes, but just one month. Yay me. <laughs> so in full disclosure, guys, it's just been really busy around here. Um, you know, I think I said this in the last episode, but even as I'm sharing our story with you guys and kind of giving a history of us and some of the things that we've gone through, we're still actually living our story. So... You know, this year has been a little bit challenging for Scott as far as some symptoms and things, and he's still undergoing some treatment for that. So we're just trying to get the, the medication combinations right, which can be tricky, even though, you know, he's uh, been dealing with bipolar disorder for all of these years. You know, your body goes through changes as you get older, and sometimes what works just decides not to work anymore. So we've had to make adjustments. And so in the midst of that, we're living life, doing things as normal. I'm working, been playing a lot of gigs. My daughter, Jasmine, you know, she's a theater nerd. So our children's theater is doing a summer show. And so she's been busy rehearsing for that. She auditioned and got her dream part. So I'll share more of that later. But anyway, so that's kind of what's been going on. So once again, I'm sorry for, you know, putting so much time in between episodes. But if you're binging this at a future date, then maybe it won't matter so much. So anyway, to recap, the last episode, I shared what happened with me and Jasmine while Scott was gone up until we were reunited. So in this episode... I'll share what was going on with him. So keep in mind that as I'm sharing this, I had no idea about any of this until we were reunited. While me and Jasmine were living our lives, Scott was having his own adventure. Apparently, after he left on that October night in 2006, he just sort of wandered around the city for a couple of weeks. At some point, he got tired, and from what I understand, he found a house or an apartment that had an open door or an unlocked door, found a couch, and laid down on it to go to sleep. Well, of course, that didn't go over too well with the owner, and they called the police. According to Scott, he woke up to the police in his face, 
and he was under arrest for breaking and entering. And of course he went to jail. So looking back, I'm glad I sent him on his way with his ID because that's how they were able to identify him. He had no prior record and he couldn't make bail. So he got a light sentence in the county jail where he spent the next few months. So that was actually a blessing because it was late fall and it was turning into winter. While it certainly may not have been fun to be in jail, it was definitely better than being on the street. He had a roof over his head and he had food. He finished out that sentence and he was released sometime in February. All this time we're in the same city. It never even occurred to me to look up police records or arrest records because the thought of Scott ever going to jail or being arrested for anything was completely off my radar. My brain didn't even go there. Didn't even think to go there. So when he got out of the jail, it was still the middle of winter and it was cold. Now, somehow Scott had the presence of mind to reason that it was better to be back in jail than the freeze out on the street. So he devised a plan to get arrested again. Pretty clever considering he had not been on medication for months. He found a CVS pharmacy of all places. He found something to break down the door because it was after hours and he went inside and found some food. He got some trail mix, some chocolate milk, and a Coke. The alarm went off, and he went outside to eat his snacks and wait for the police, which, of course, eventually came, and he got arrested again. And this is actually where his journey back to us began. He was assigned a public defender who I know was an angel sent from God. He could see right away that Scott was not well, when he got arrested, he was placed in the part of the jail for people with mental health issues, which really wasn't a great place to be. The lawyer, whose name was Jason, could see that Scott was only deteriorating even more and really didn't need to be there. When it came time for Scott to face the charges against him, which was larceny, a felony, for $10 worth of snacks, and I guess the break-in as well, it was clear to Jason that Scott didn't understand the charges against him. It just wasn't registering. So that gave Jason the leverage to file a motion for Scott to undergo psychiatric evaluation under court supervision. It took several months for this motion to go through. All during that time, Jasmine and I were living our lives. Scott stayed in the county jail through the spring and most of the summer. When I went to the police station downtown to file that missing persons report, little did I know that Scott was only a few feet away from me. It didn't occur to the police officer to look him up in the system, and it didn't occur to me to ask him to. I have no idea what would have happened if things had played out that way. Scott in jail? Unbelievable. Evidently, God didn't want me to know about that just yet. Finally, the motion was granted, and Scott was shipped off to the state mental hospital in Raleigh. This would have been sometime in August, maybe right around the time I was reconnecting with the sibling. When he got there, he got treatment, and three weeks later, he reached out to his family, which led him back to me. I heard from him on a Thursday night, and the next day, Friday, I drove to Raleigh to see him in person. He looked pretty good, actually, and seemed happy to see me. I got a bit of information from the staff, and I was able to give them some information. Remember, they didn't know Scott from Jack. All they had was his name. They didn't have any history on him at all. But as he got better, he was able to let them know his medical history. And when I spoke to them, I verified it and filled in the gaps. He was being treated for bipolar 1, the same diagnosis he had originally. The staff was really nice. 
One of the nurses there was relieved. She said to me, I'm just so glad you're real. He kept talking about a wife and daughter, but we weren't sure if he was just being delusional. The doctor mentioned that he responded well to treatment, and he could tell that Scott was highly intelligent, and he thought he had a good prognosis. But he had to stay there and wouldn't be released until he was evaluated once again by the court in a competency hearing. Well, that was going to take a while for the system to get around all of that red tape for that, so he just had to sit there for a while and wait, which wasn't a bad thing. He was safe, he was getting medication, and he was healing and getting food. I went to visit him as much as I could about an hour and a half away while at the same time working, parenting, and doing all the things. And of course, I filled my support team in on the wonderful news. Meanwhile, I finally got to meet Jason. Somehow, I got his information and went to his office personally. He was a really nice guy, and when he met Scott, he immediately knew that this man was not a criminal, but he needed some help. He had this deep southern drawl and said, I knew he won't write. He broke into a pharmacy and all he got was some chocolate milk and trail mix. He was hungry. He wasn't trying to commit no crime. He had enough insight to see that Scott was no criminal. His heart went out to Scott. And yes, he really did talk that way. So anyway, then Jason said something that really touched me. I'm just so glad he has a family. He seemed so relieved to find out that Scott wasn't just a vagrant. But this was a man with a family who loved him and he was just in a bad way. I know beyond the shadow of doubt that this was God's sovereignty and providence at work in Scott's life. Jason was literally sent from heaven. He advocated hard for Scott even before knowing anything about his background. He let me know that he was being charged with a felony, which is not a good thing to have on one's record. Jason promised to do what he could to get it reduced to a misdemeanor, and now that he had some history, he would be able to make a strong case. So, for the next few weeks, we waited. Scott stayed in Raleigh. I went back and forth to visit him as much as I could. The staff could see steady improvement in him and told me that since I started visiting him, he was getting even better. He had perked up. He was really glad to see me. Hmm. Evidently, he had no memory of his behavior towards me when he left, wanting to divorce me and all that. He had bipolar amnesia. Well, I didn't, and those memories were still clear to me. So I was super guarded with him, even though I was happy to see him and glad he was safe. But finally, he was deemed to be competent to stand trial, and the time came for him to be released. Since he was still under court supervision, he was released right back to the county jail. I could either bail him out or let him stay there until his trial. At first, not going to lie, I was going to let him stay there. I just wasn't sure if I was ready for him to be back under my roof just yet. But then I went to visit him in the jail. We had to do the visit via video monitor and he shuffled in with his orange jumpsuit and shackles. I took one look at him and I knew I could not leave him there. It was heartbreaking. I mean, I know they have their protocol, but that to me almost looked inhumane. Scott didn't need to be chained up like that. He was not a criminal. I was like, well, shoot the heck with it. I'll just pay the bail. And before I knew it, he was home. Almost a year, exactly from the time he left. It was October 2007 by this point. He came home just in time for Jasmine's fourth birthday, which was October 9th. He really was doing so much better, and he was super grateful to be back in a real home with a real bed with real food. He was closer to the man I married, his true self. What can I say? I'm a sucker. My compassion and love for my husband one out over any other negative feelings I might have had. He still had his trial coming up. 
True to Jason's word, he advocated for Scott. I don't think Scott even had to show up in court. Jason made his case, and the charges were reduced to a misdemeanor. And that was that. Scott just came home as if he had never been gone, and we were instantly a family again. Of course, that is by far not the end of the story. I thought it was. I thought it was a happy ending, and we could finally get back on track with our lives that were so rudely interrupted. For a while, things looked promising. Scott got more and more healthy. He got set up with medical care. The ordeal took a toll on his body, and at one point, he kept saying to me, I keep seeing flashes of light. We went to the doctor, and he had a torn and detached retina. That was a medical emergency, and he ended up having eye surgery. He came through it great, but it was evidence that he still had a lot of recovery ahead of him, both physically and mentally. But Scott was doing his best. He even met Dr. H and came to sessions with me and started going to church with me. I continued doing my job and finished out the school year. We even had the opportunity to move into a little house that we rented. I was super happy. We were getting back to normal. By the end of the school year, I had decided I had had enough of teaching public school. It was stressful, and honestly, I felt a strong pull to be more present for my family. We were still pretty fragile, and I was kind of the glue holding things together. Jasmine was about to turn five, and although she was eligible for kindergarten with her October birthday, I felt like she was still a little young for that transition. I decided to take on a different job, teaching private lessons at a studio, which would give me more flexibility in my schedule and give me time with Jasmine. Since she had graduated from preschool and was too young for kindergarten, she had a gap year in which I decided to homeschool her in order for her to not lose what she gained in preschool and to make sure she was psychologically and mentally ready for kindergarten. Scott even got a little job delivering pizzas. We found a used drum set for him to set up in the little house and for a while, all was well. And then came 2009. By then, it started to become clear that my job at the studio was not going to be as lucrative as I'd hoped. Scott was delivering pizzas, but he still was not quite well enough to take on more than that. We had gotten a second car for him to deliver pizzas with from the sibling, but it was acting up and not reliable. Jasmine was still at home, and we really couldn't afford daycare, and I wasn't going to leave her with my mother every day. I had a firm conviction that for me to take on a full-time job was not good for my family's overall well-being. I've never been a lazy person when it comes to working and making money. I did the best I could doing freelance jobs as a violinist, trying to get more private students where I had more control of my schedule, and just doing everything I could. It was right around the recession too, so I guess people weren't wanting private lessons for violin as much. By the middle of 2009, it was becoming evident that we were not going to be able to sustain ourselves financially. Bills started piling up. Rent got behind. Car payments got behind. I was getting more and more stressed. Finally, that June, I gave in and gave up. We were going to have to give up the little house and having nowhere else to go, we were going to have to move back in with my mother. I am so glad that I have a family who will do what they can to support me and my family. My mother's doors and her heart were always open, but I was devastated. I was really looking forward to having something resembling a normal life. After all we'd been through, all I wanted was peace. I wanted a home and a yard for my daughter. I wanted my family together and growing, and I just wanted normalcy. But it wasn't working. I felt like a failure. 
We stayed in the house for as long as we could until we were asked to leave. In other words, we got evicted. We put things in storage, and then we moved with my mother. Looking back, it actually turned out to not be so bad. Of course, in hindsight, I could see God's hand even in that, but at the time, it didn't feel too great. I mean, here we were, pushing 40, with nothing to show for our lives, and I had no idea how we would ever get back on track. Even my car ended up getting repossessed. How could things get worse, you know? In the midst of that, there were some good things about our situation. For one thing, my mother lived in an apartment complex. Jasmine no longer had a yard, but she did have access to a pool whenever she wanted. She was a little fish and loved the water. Her and grandma had a good time too. So my mother, she was delighted to have her grandchild under her roof. She was glad we were all safe and really didn't require a whole lot from us as far as rent or anything. Her apartment was in a good school district, so Jasmine registered for kindergarten in a better school than she would have had if we had stayed in our house. And she made new friends in the apartment complex. So even though I felt like a failure and that we couldn't get ourselves together, Jasmine was having a great time. She was thriving. She had her dance classes. She got to go to theater camp in the summer. She loved school. She bonded with grandma even more. She had friends. I mean, what a blessing for her. In November 2009, we had a death in the family. My brother passed away just before Thanksgiving that year, and it was rough. He had just gotten married six weeks before. He had a challenging life, and at 47, he was finally able to settle down. A couple years earlier, he'd had a major health scare with untreated high blood pressure that damaged his kidneys and forced him on dialysis. Maybe that got his attention because by 2009, he'd had a steady job, he had a fiancé, a little house, and after so many years of struggling with addiction, things were looking good for him. He seemed to have finally found some peace in his life. He got married that October, and then a few weeks later, he was gone. It was hard. He was my mother's firstborn, her only son, and it was difficult for her, probably more than she let on. It was bittersweet because it was nice to know that he had found some happiness before he left us, considering the challenges he had had. He and I were exactly nine years apart. I was born on his ninth birthday, so we were always birthday buddies. Again, looking back, I'm glad that I had those last years with him. Being so far apart in age also means being far apart in life stages, so there was some distance throughout our lives just based on that. But leaving Tennessee and being forced back home put me in a closer proximity with him, and we were able to spend more time together. He was a good uncle to Jasmine, and did the best he could as a brother and son and new husband. Like I said, it was rough, but God's grace, so abundant. We were living with my mother by this time, so she wasn't alone in bearing her grief. She enjoyed our company most of the time, <laughs> and I think having us there was soothing for her, especially having Jasmine around. After my brother passed, life went on. 2009 turned into 2010, and... I felt like we were not getting anywhere in life. We finally figured out that it was probably best for Scott to not work. It was much better for his mental health to have that pressure taken off of him. So that left things up to me as far as figuring out what I could do financially. It was hard for me because to be honest, I wasn't feeling so great myself and it was all I could do just to do some freelancing. I felt so weary. I thought maybe it was grief 
Maybe it was the toll that our turbulent life took on me. Maybe I was depressed. Yeah, I was definitely depressed. I mean, who wouldn't be? Here I was, living with my mother, feeling like a loser, just lost my brother, lost my house, my husband was gone for a year, I've got a four-year-old, five-year-old child. It was a lot, and I was not feeling good. I was playing a concert one day, and right in the middle of a movement of William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony, I almost blacked out. I felt dizzy, like I was going to fall out of the chair. So during intermission, I had to go home. Finally, I broke down and went to the doctor. They did a CBC on me, and the next day, I got a phone call. You need to come in right away so we can discuss your blood work. Hmm, that did not sound too good. When I got there, the doctor seemed like he was in a panic. In this thick Nigerian accent, he said, You are severely anemic. We need a blood transfusion right away. You could be bleeding internally. I don't remember what else he said because he seemed so alarmed he was scaring me. So the nurse, she was a little bit more calm. She suggested we go straight to the emergency room. Huh. Well, we went to the emergency room where it was confirmed that I was indeed severely anemic and they would not let me leave until I received two pints of blood. Well, at least now I knew why I felt like death and was blacking out. I had a severe iron deficiency. They gave me two pints of blood and I left the hospital feeling like a new woman. I had dragged myself into the ER and then in 24 hours with very little sleep, I was skipping out the door. The ER doctor assured me I wasn't dying and didn't have any internal bleeding, but that it was probably just a gradual loss of iron over time. I guess that made sense because I was under a lot of stress and probably wasn't paying attention to my diet or anything. So now that I had more energy and the fog in my brain was clearing, maybe we could finally begin to move forward with our lives. So, remember how I said Scott and I met in a musical missions group? It just so happened that they had decided to form these short-term, three-week mission trips called Reprise for people who maybe couldn't commit to do a whole summer or were a bit older and didn't want to be out on the road for weeks and weeks at a time. We had been in touch with the main office off and on over the years, and we were invited to join them for that summer's outreach. We could even bring Jasmine along. They were going to Oaxaca, Mexico. Wow, I thought this would be a great opportunity for our family. It would give us something to do, we could use our gifts for a good cause, and we could have a great family experience, and maybe it was a first step towards getting out of the slump we'd been in. It sounded exciting. So, summer 2010, through a series of amazing events, our little family of three, with nothing really to our names, found ourselves heading to California to train for three weeks on the road and going to Oaxaca, Mexico. It was definitely adventure. It had been, what, more than 10 years since we had traveled with them? And of course, we weren't married then and had no kids. But this time, we were older, married, and dragging our six-year-old with us. It was a great outreach, to be honest. We even put Jasmine to work, giving her a percussion part in a couple of the songs. We had some truly beautiful experiences on that trip. We prayed with people, shared our faith, and ate some amazing food. Jasmine made friends with some of the children in Mexico. It really was an incredible experience for all of us, but especially for her. I thought, maybe this is what God wants us to do. Maybe it's good that we didn't have anything to our names because we're free to be missionaries or travel the world or, or something. 
Well, that didn't last long. Whatever dreams I had of going back to all the nations for Jesus fell apart. The ministry wasn't really operating full-time the same way it had been 10 years earlier, so there really wasn't a place for us there long-term. Plus, Scott wasn't really on board with that idea anyway. So, after a few weeks, it was all over, and back to North Carolina we went. Jasmine started first grade, I got on the sub list for the school system so I could have control over my schedule, and got some pretty good long-term assignments, which helped us out a lot. We continued to see Dr. H off and on, and for the most part, things were okay. Not great, not horrible. Jasmine really got the best out of that time. She had it made in the shade with her good school, her activities, her little friends. She was super happy. That helped me to feel better. But by this time, for a variety of reasons, our church attendance began to slip. We had some experiences that left a bad taste in our mouths, and gradually, I think we both had had enough of the quote-unquote institutional church system. We were still strong in our faith, just over the politics and church culture. After we got back from that trip to Mexico, it seemed as if we sank deeper into a void of no direction, no insight into the way out of our situation. I felt like we were languishing, just existing. Now, as far as Scott's family goes, and the trauma that Scott had uncovered years earlier, that was also stalled. He'd had some contact with his family back in Tennessee, but not a whole lot. He still wasn't warm to them, but he also wasn't cutting them off completely either. We'd seen them one Christmas break, and it was awkward. I guess we were trying to patch things up, but I wasn't convinced that they were safe. After all the things that Scott had said about them... I figured that had to come from somewhere. I don't think it was just a delusion. Right before Scott had come back home, I had reestablished contact with the sibling. So this was back in 2007. We had rebuilt the relationship for a while, but then cracks began to form in my relationship with them. And finally, we just stopped communicating altogether. It wasn't a healthy situation at all. Scott wasn't super close with the sibling when he came back, even though the sibling seemed to be the only one in his family that seemed to want to be close to him. But he kept them at arm's length. Ironically, I was closer to the sibling than he was. But I'll just say this. The sibling had some issues that interfered with our ability to have a successful relationship. So from about 2009 until maybe around 2011, maybe even sooner, probably about 2008, we didn't really have contact with this person at all. Until 2011. 2011 was the year that changed everything. If I thought things had been difficult before, nothing, nothing could prepare me for the chaos that was to come. To be continued. Thank you for tuning in to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. You can find out more information about us along with some helpful resources by visiting my website at www.simpkinsfamilychronicles.com. Be sure to subscribe to my email list for updates and follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Simpkins Family Chronicles. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, the adventure continues.